our topic in this panel is uh, defense market outlook challenges for the next administration. And I, I have to begin by amending and revising uh, our title because uh, Dave Melcher pointed out when we were getting ready for this session, it really should be challenges and opportunities. Uh, and I think he's exactly right about that. It wasn't our intent to suggest there aren't opportunities, but we, uh, we just weren't as smart as Dave. So uh, as, is, uh, as has been proven before and has been proven again. Uh, so, uh, you know, there's, there's quite a bit uh, in play. Uh, the challenges that were detailed in the morning session for the new administration are daunting, to say the least. Um, and all of those challenges are going to have, are going to come into play and have an impact on uh, defense industry uh, and on the way that uh, U.S. national security capabilities are developed, are purchased, uh, are used, and the way in which that happens in a global uh, a global supply chain, a global market, and a, a global environment. So uh, we're going to explore that a little more deeply and get into a little more uh, specificity and depth, I hope, with this panel. Uh, and uh, I wanted to bring your attention uh, briefly, and I'm really hoping this is going to work, to our screen here, because uh, as we have this conversation, we're going to try and do uh, sort of a live, uh, a live data poll. Uh, so we have uh, the, a new tool that we're sort of debuting, or at least previewing. This is kind of a beta version uh, in this panel, which is an interactive graph version uh, of our contract database. Uh, and, and some of you, hopefully many of you, are familiar with our annual reports, which lay out in detail in a series of 40 to 50 graphs uh, all the issues. What we've done with this tool is put all of those graphs essentially into one tool uh, that the user can uh, then specify, narrow down the parameters, and go through the data however they would like uh, to cut it and, and to examine the issues that they're interested in. So in theory, there's an infinite number of charts uh, available uh, out, of this, uh, out of this thing. So we're going to try, and as we get into issues, if there's relevant data, uh, we think, uh, try and maybe take a look at some of that. Uh, and then we're also going to hope that uh, the data doesn't suggest that what we're saying as panelists is not correct. Um, that's the fun part. Uh, so, uh, without too much further ado now, I'm going to uh, turn to our panelists. I'm going to start by introducing them. Uh, most of them don't really need an introduction to this group, but we also have our web audience, so I will introduce them. Uh, to my right is Bill Lynn, who's CEO of Leonardo North America and DRS Technologies. He previously served as the 30th U.S. Deputy Secretary of Defense uh, under Secretary Gates and Secretary Panetta. Uh, he uh, ran the Department of Defense as effectively as COO when he was the Deputy Secretary. Uh, previously had worked at Raytheon as Senior Vice President of Government Operations and has uh, a slew of degrees from a, a wide range of colleges. Uh, to his right is uh, Dave Melcher, who is President and CEO of Aerospace Industries Association. Uh, he has previously served as CEO and President of Excellus. Uh, which was spun out of ITT, and before that, uh, a very uh, distinguished career in the United States Army, uh, culminating uh, as Lieutenant General. Uh, and uh, I know some, some interesting times working in the uh, G8 community, also with, with Dr. Hamry, uh, for portions of that. To his right is Heidi Hsu, uh, former Assistant Secretary of the Army for Acquisition Logistics and Technology. Uh, she, prior to that, worked at Raytheon uh, in their space and airborne systems as a corporate vice president of technology and research. Uh, she is currently serving as a board member of the Aerospace Corporation and I believe a, a variety of other companies, or at least one other that I know of. 
Uh, and to her right is Joe Banker, uh, who is a vice president of the Cohen Group. He previously served as Assistant Secretary of Defense for Global Security Affairs. Uh, he specializes in defense-related issues, including building capability of U.S. Uh, allies and security cooperation. Uh, he is a career naval officer, uh, retiring as a Navy captain in 2003, uh, and also has uh, a slew of degrees from a, a number of distinguished uh, academic institutions, including one that I also attended. Uh, so uh, we're going to begin uh, the discussion with uh, Bill Lynn. And Bill, over to you. Uh, thanks very much, Andrew. Thanks for uh, chairing this panel, and thanks to CSIS for hosting this, and uh, thanks for giving us the penthouse to have the, uh, uh, this session. Um, let me uh, just open things uh, with a few remarks about kind of the context of the defense market and put it in a historical context. I, I think that we're at the cusp of a, of a third pivot in terms of the structure of that market. The, the first pivot occurred at, in World War II when we moved from basically a shipyard, uh, an arsenal, a government-run system that only uh, pulled on the commercial uh, space when there was a conflict and then, and then sifted back just like actually uh, the military itself basically demobilized with, with World War II, that, that shifted. And, and that shift was permanent. We, we ended up with a, 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 a bunch of, of conglomerate-style companies. In other words, all the big manufacturing companies basically had a defense division. Ford, General Motors, eventually IBM, General Electric, everybody developed a, a, a defense division. And that was essentially what uh, powered us through uh, the Cold War until we got to that second pivot which was at the, at the end of the Cold War when Bill Perry gathered the defense industry for the famous Last Supper and basically said DOD no longer had the capacity to support the breadth of industry that we had and, and was looking to industry to basically reshape itself uh, into a, a narrower structure that could still provide the technology that our, our forces needed. That actually happened. I mean, it was a, a, a successful policy initiative, and we ended up with the structure that we have today, which moved really from conglomerates to specialists. Most of the, I mean, the major defense companies now are 60 to 80 percent of their revenue comes from defense. They really are a, a, a specialist, and there's many, many fewer of them. We've gone from, you know, 40 or 50 major players of size in the defense market to a half a dozen, and then a, a, then a a tier or two below that, um, that, that structure again worked. We, we, we pivoted uh, and it, uh, we didn't really miss a beat, I think, in terms of maintaining the technological edge that we, we've had since World War II and all, all the way through the Cold War. But what I'm suggesting now is that there are forces that are, are pushing us towards, as I say, a third pivot. Those forces are three. One is uh, consolidation, at least at the platform level. The, the number of, of major platforms that the department is buying is getting narrower and narrower. As a consequence, the number of competitors in that space is narrowing down to two and, in some cases, one. Uh, obviously, with, uh, with uh, new, uh, aircraft carriers, we're at one. With uh, submarines, we're two, but they allocate the work, so there's not really a competition between the two. It's an allocation. Uh, tactical aircraft is moving in that direction. I mean, there, there, you still have 
uh, Boeing and, and Lockheed, but at some point we will stop making, I think, F-18s and F-15s and we'll center on the F-35. How do you keep a, a, a competitive structure in that? That's, I think, one of those forces is that consolidation in the platform market is, is driving a change in the industry. Uh, second is the internationalization of the industrial base. Uh, you see it uh, very definitively now in terms of, of the supply base of all of the major uh, defense companies. It's a global supply base, where, whereas if you looked even 20 years ago, it was heavily an American uh, supply base. And, and now it's, 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 it's very global. They go for the best technology, the best prices. I would argue that that's going to start to shift to the prime level as well, and it is, is already is already started. Uh, I see a little bit the auto industry as a, a, an example of the kind of shifts. It's it's become less and less important what the nameplate is. Uh, it is important where the jobs are. You have to maintain technology and jobs, and there's there's politics and all that. But if just just one little snippet out of the auto industry, if if, if you ask. What's the largest U.S.-made export in terms of cars? Uh, I won't keep you in suspense. It's BMW. Uh, it's not an American uh, American brand. It's an American-built car. It's just not a, an American uh, brand. I, I think defense more and more. It's going to matter less what the nameplate is, and uh, uh, although it, it doesn't mean that the the jobs and the technology necessarily migrate. Um, and then third, the third factor, maybe the most important is the source of technology for, uh, for defense. For most of the Cold War, I would argue defense was probably a net exporter of technology. We developed technology inside the industrial base. We applied it to defend uh, military operational needs, but also applied it to commercial needs. I mean, GPS jumps out in that regard. The Internet itself uh, came out of, out of uh, a lot of the work DARPA did. So you, you saw a, a lot of technologies developed inside a very robust R&D uh, 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 spending uh, and then were, were exported. More and more now, you're seeing defense as a net importer, uh, particularly cutting-edge technology. It's 3D printing, autonomous uh, operations, material science, uh, all of these things, nanotechnology, all of these things, the, the, the weight of the, the R&D is more on the commercial side. And so one of the big challenges for defense is how do you pull that technology now into the defense uh, uh, industrial base and operationalize it for military uses? It's a, it's a, different, it's a different model. So I, I, I think you know, all of those forces are pushing us towards a different type of, of defense structure. And I think the most important thing for the new administration is to think about how they want to shape it. Uh, and their, their aspiration should be, frankly, in my mind, is to be as successful as the first two pivots. Because both of those were shaped. The, the, the Roosevelt administration during World War II set up a series of boards, and they really shaped the, the defense mark, uh, market structure that we, we had coming out of World War II. Similarly, Secretary Perry and others with a little bit lighter touch, but nevertheless uh, a, a conscious effort to shape. I think, I don't know whether either of those two models uh, apply here, but I think the goal does. You want to think about how is it the, the, the market, you're going to react to these forces in the market and shape the industrial base to ensure that we don't lose 
that uh, technological edge. And uh, I think, as I said, I think the most important thing is to just grasp this as an issue. I don't, this is not one of these intractable issues. I, I think this can be addressed. I think we can be uh, successful here. I think we do have time. I don't think this is, we're not, going, we're not heading towards a cliff. But the, those, those three forces I mentioned are going to continue to press uh, on the market. Uh, the industry is going to have to react. It's going to be very important for the uh, department to have its agenda. I think the agenda is going to have uh, a focus. You're going to have to focus on how do you improve the agility of the structure we have. I mean, everybody talks about acquisition reform. I, 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 I think the most important thing about acquisition reform is not so much the cost and schedule focus. It's how do you break that, that iron lock that it takes 7, 10, 12 years to go from beginning to end. The, the techno technological developments don't allow that in most or, or, or many cases. Uh, uh, second, how do you, how do you uh, incentivize R&D investments? Uh, there was a lot of talk downstairs about the uh, Budget Control Act and instability. I think that's a, a significant driver. As long as we have that kind of in instability, it's very hard to ask companies to make significant investments in R&D if they don't know what the department's going to buy even 18 months from now. Uh, and then finally, probably the most important one is that one I mentioned before. Is how do you have a structure that allows defense companies to import commercial technologies or allows commercial, technolo commercial companies to compete directly? But the, you, the, the department, I think, has a strong interest in making sure that the defense market is permeable to those commercial uh, structures. So that's the challenge. As I say, I think we have two examples of success in the past. I think what we're looking for is over this administration and perhaps the next is to see a third success. And I'll stop there. Thanks, Bill. And I just briefly, since we're, we're going to try this, uh, to illustrate, I think, your point a little bit, uh, we're going to put up the share of contract obligations by vendor and focus uh, specifically on R&D, so the development of next generation systems. And what you see is there's definitely something going on uh, in the system, to your point, about there being an inflection, which is that uh, the big companies are a, a much smaller share today of next generation system development. Some of that's just because of the nature of the BCA and the funding pattern, but I think it also uh, shows that there's just fewer of them and fewer systems in development, and I think that's a real, real dynamic. Uh, next up, uh, Dave. Uh, I could relate to the comments uh, Bill was making, uh, having been part of a company called ITT that in its heyday under Harold Janine in the 80s was a, like a $24 billion conglomerate that owned the New York Knicks, Hostess Twinkies, Wonder Bread, hotels, and a defense business. Um, those were all part of that company that split into three parts in 1995, ended up splitting again into three parts in 2011, one of which was Excellus, uh, which was the spinoff of the defense business. And I remember going to talk to Bill at the time, um, before that happened, to sit down and talk about this transition, try and do a little mutual hand-holding and say, hey, it's going to be all right, you know, because <laughs> we worked issues like night vision and space payloads and other things that were important to the department. And this was, you know, part of the evolution of what was happening inside the industry. But as you know now, I represent a trade association called Airspace Industries. And I just wanted to give you a couple facts about sort of the industry as it sits today. This is an industry that supports 1.7 million jobs across the United States, probably another million more beyond that when you take all the salaries that, go, that come out of that employment across our economy. 
It's about $605 billion worth of sales. It's hundreds of billion dollars worth of exports. And it's about the only major positive balance trade uh, that we have in the U.S. economy internationally at about $82 billion. Um, that's a big impact. And so one of the messages that I have in, in whatever happens with a new administration or sequestration is this is an engine uh, for this United States economy that can bring a lot of great jobs that pay on average about $93,000 each. Um, this is good work. It's noble work. And for those of you who have ever been in industry, you know that people have a real sense of purpose and patriotism in the things that they do. Um, you know, when it comes to international, uh, Mac Thornberry mentioned FMS. Um, that's an area that continues to be one that's a challenge and potentially an opportunity. Uh, the system is labyrinthine, uh, I think, as we know. There's a lot of hoops to get through. It takes too long to get some of the kind of capabilities uh, to customers who are our allies and who are our partners and who need the capability. So in terms of mutual security, that's something that I think uh, a new administration wants to address. But even more than, than just that, you know, when you look at some of the restrictions on technology transfer that have been in place and are now sort of slowly moving from Cold War standards to maybe more contemporary ones because whole markets have been created by the things we were trying to prevent. Again, think night vision, space payloads, unmanned uh, aircraft systems, and so forth. If we don't address some of the restrictions that allow us to compete internationally, then we're going to lose a huge opportunity, at least for UAS, for about an $80 billion market that's already being saturated uh, by other countries who will gain influence by bringing that capability uh, to customers that perhaps are our allies. Uh, and so I think that's something we want to address. The BCA caps really were dressed, I think, uh, very well this morning. That's a, a, a hindrance, I think, to anybody's predictability. Um, corporate America abhors, uh, you know, uh, unpredictability, just like those who are in government do. Uh, we really need to get some stable funding. Uh, and one of the things the new administration can do, we talked about it a little bit before, to, before we came in here, is they have the opportunity to put a supplemental on the table and say, this is what we want to do to bolster defense spending. It's one of our priorities. I'd even argue that out of the infrastructure spending that's been talked about, it's not just roads and bridges. It's also infrastructure related to defense, where we're doing co-production, NASA, civil aviation, all the other things that, you know, comprise both defense and non-defense spending. Um, one of the things that I think is an opportunity, we talked about that, is the, the impetus to try and address regulation. I mean, if you just sit down and you cite some of the things that all of industry has dealt with over the last couple of years, counterfeit parts, cyber compliance, which is still, you know, we're not where we need to be, we all know that, uh, human trafficking, conflict minerals, fair pay, safe workplace, uh, and most lately in the defense community, review of uh, IRAD. Uh, bringing all your IRAD in to have it reviewed. Originally it was approved, but at least reviewed. Um, to me, these are impediments to uh, the kind of innovation that you're actually trying to stimulate. And I think it's, it's a compliance mentality as opposed to uh, a fostering innovation mentality, and that's something that ought to be addressed. And then with respect to um, innovation, I think some of the things that were proposed in the NDAA are trying to get it cultural change. Uh, and we can talk a little bit more about that as we go forward. But I think this industry has really tried to embrace many of the initiatives that are being pursued by the, the team that's in the Department of Defense now to include partnering with a lot of companies from Silicon Valley and other places. One thing we've got to make sure is that the rules of the game for the commercial marketplace 
are pretty much the rules of the game for the defense marketplace because, again, it is a more of a compliance and regulatory heavy environment when it comes to defense than it is in the commercial arena. And I think that's just something to watch as we go forward. So that's it for an opener. Thanks, Dave. Heidi. Okay, so by the way, I completely com uh, agree with – I'm going to turn this off for you. Thanks, Dave. <laughs> uh, th the first thing I want to talk about is the budget instability. Uh, so I completely concur with this morning uh, when uh, Max Thornberry and Panetta – Yes, sir. <laughs> Can you hear me better now? Okay. Uh, the significant budget churn that has happened the last several years uh, due to the 2011 BCA has created enormous amount of, I call it, wasted time within the Pentagon, okay? Because now you have to build not just one budget, which is hard enough. You've got to build this bud uh, Palm High, Palm BCA. And what will happen and all the what ifs in between. So you're, you're spending enormous amount of time. What if? What, what if this? What if that happens? Just very, very frustrating. And this use of CR every single year, uh, you can't start new programs. You can't ramp up production, right? It creates significant amount of churn within your programs. On top of that, you ha your industry partner is sitting there waiting not knowing what's going to happen next, right? So terrible, terrible idea having this budget instability. That's, some, that's number one priority to fix. Uh, in the area of modernization, I would say the equipment modernization account, especially in the Army, has taken the biggest hit in the last several years as the budget started to come down rapidly. Okay. Uh, so I, I personally feel that a two-pronged approach is absolutely needed to modernize our weapon systems, uh, to confront the advanced threats from nation states that's proliferating, okay, and we're seeing that, and as well as the lower tech uh, asymmetric threats we continue to see, and that's not going to go away, right? The IEDs are not going to stop. Suicide bombers are not going to stop. There's going to be a proliferation, exponential increase in UAVs, right? So those are the things we, we need to continue to invest in to counter. Okay. Um, so there's a whole lot of stuff in my mind to counter the nation-state threats uh, that I personally have had a discussion with Eric Fanning before I left, uh, as well uh, as with the chief. We absolutely got to modernize and integrate our air and missile defense. Okay. We can't just continue to peanut butter the funding a little bit at a time. We've got to develop assured PNT, okay, a position nav and timing. Uh, we need to integrate cyber defense with cyber offense and integrate that with electronic warfare. Uh, we need longer range weapons. We already see our adversary developing longer range weapons. We need to do the same. We need to integrate multifunctional, multimodal, multi-phenomenology into our sensors to give, because single mode is simply not going to work. Okay? We need assured communications. These are just a, a snapshot of stuff we critically got to invest in. Okay? Um, 
to counter asymmetric threats, I'll touch upon some of them, right? Countering IEDs, robotics. Instead of put a soldier in harm's way, robotics, okay? Countering UAVs, I talked about. We need integrated aircraft equipment to, count, uh, to enhance our survivability. It is very cheap and very asymmetric using an RPG to shoot down a helicopter, right? Or using a missile to shoot down a plane, okay? Um, we need integrate your sensors with the visualization tools to enable our ability to see through degraded visual environment. So we can fight in any environment. Okay. So those are just a few things. Okay. Uh, I do want to touch upon acquisition. Okay. Acquisition reform absolutely need to focus on reducing the bureaucratic processes that's inherent in the building. Right now, what, what I've seen in the five years and two months, almost three, in the building, was the sequential review process that goes on within the building, okay? Uh, from each service, then going up to OSD. So what'll happen is, you get a program management, if you try to make, make it through a, a milestone review, you have to make dozens of trips, because dozens of people can ask for a briefing. Okay, so now you, spend, you think about the dozen of trips he has to make into the Pentagon to get all the stakeholders aligned so by the time you get into a meeting, you'll get a thumbs up rather than, oh, I don't agree with this, go back to the drawing table, which will take you at least six months to get back on the calendar of senior leaders. Painful, painful process, okay. The, the second critical thing that I see that absolutely has to change is the total... I, I see the lack of uh, alignment and accountability between the functional organization and program management. In industry, the functional organization know that their job is support the program manager and make it succeed, not in the Pentagon. Everybody has different roles. Everybody looks at the world through their soda straw, and they are not aligned. Okay. Um, for example, I'm going to give you one example, contracting staff shortfalls. 1 p.m. has said, I need to let a contract. I've got $400 million at stake. I need to award this contract. Well, that particular contracting center was short of 42 staff. Can't award the contract. If you can't award the contract, you lose the money, right? And your schedule start to slip out already, okay? That's just one example. Testers, they can demand testing any time that they want. They have no responsibility in terms of budget or schedule to, to the program execution. So therefore, so no, I don't like this one little wee bit of things. It didn't quite satisfy my criteria. Come back for another test next year. Well, your program just slipped a year. Okay. So, and I've seen testers totally unwilling to share test data with the program manager until the final report is written. That's a six-month process. So program manager can't even fix the problems that the tester found because they're not going to sh share the data with you. It's insanity. Okay? So I have lots of examples. I just don't have the time. <laughs> okay. In the Cold War acquisition process that we've talked about, it makes it extremely difficult to be agile and adaptive with the threats that's happening today, okay? Well, why? Uh, so, so first of all, the long acquisition process results in a weapon system 
that's no longer at the cutting edge of technology by the time you field it, right? Um, as a result, so what happens is you, you have organizations that's created to bypass the acquisition process, right? Uh, JRAC, right? RCO, Zaref, Jaido, Big Savara, you name it, a whole slew of organizations to bypass acquisition process rather than let's fix the acquisition process, okay? Uh, here's some fundamental problems. Why does it take so freaking long, okay? Okay, you can't buy anything unless there's a requirements document, right? Well, it can take two years to write and approve a requirements document. And the requirements document demand that you have a crystal ball, you know exactly what you want perfectly. Well, that never happens. So requirements always change. And when requirements change, when your middle of design stretches out, it all costs more and stretches out the schedule, okay? The current year budget was locked two years ago, right? You don't have flexibility. If you see something you really like, you wanna buy it, well, let's plan it for the next palm, right? Which is two to three years down the line to start the process of planning. It takes two years within the process today to from an approved acquisition strategy document to a contract award. All the steps that you gotta go through, you issue a draft RFP, you have to hold industry day, formal RFP release, receiving proposal, doing evaluation, doing source selection, contract review board, congressional notification. I'm just mentioning a few of the steps to contract award. This is why it takes two years to even award a contract. Meanwhile, you got contractors wrote your RFP. You're sitting there twiddling your thumb, paying your staff, hurry up and wait, okay? Um, to insert the latest innovation into a program, which was not planned, good luck, okay? Because you have to change your program strategy now, right? In midstream, which creates incredible major upheaval in the program plan with a risk of losing your funding with your current plan, or current program funding. This creates institutional resistance to change. Don't perturb my program, I'm executing it. Oh my God, you want this new thing, would you to be added? Start from scratch again, okay? So this is why it takes so freaking long, okay? Just a few examples. Uh, and I will, I will wrap up by saying, stop treating the defense industry like they're your adversaries, which, <laughs> <laughs> and, and stop the micromanagement, okay? The, you've got to fundamentally understand that the capability that's brought to a warfighter is enabled by our defense industry. It is not created by the government, right? Okay, so defense industry will invest in IRA and capital to give them a competitive advantage. Stop micromanaging their investment. It is absolutely non-value added bureaucracy. I can tell you, nobody in the government knows what the hell you're, you're trying to do because you're innovating on your iRAD. You can't even find a person who can even understand what you're trying to do, mm -hmm. much less, yeah, that sounds right, okay? Industry will make money on some program and lose money on some. So why is DOD trying to limit the profit margin on one program at a time? It's just, these are things that I, I, I don't think, I think it needs to be changed, okay? LPTA, it's a race to the bottom. 
lowest bidder wins. So what will happen? You'll hire inexperienced people on the program, and program blows up. You're wondering what happened. Okay, you got LPTA. You got what you asked for, right? Uh, commercial item determination uh, consume enormous amount of time from contracting folks and the vendor who sub subjugated to this investigation. A herd of people is going to come down, descend upon your company, and spend lots of time within your company scrutinizing your books. I haven't seen the return on investment on that. Okay. So how do you get capability faster to warfight? I'll wrap it up. Andrew, Andrew's giving me the dirty look. Okay. <laughs> Use mature technologies. Enable more prototyping. Buy limited quantity. Don't buy 2,000 airplanes. All have to be identical. Use a spiral upgrade, right? When a new technology comes, if you have X amount. The so Y amount, the next spiral, have greater capability. And Z amount will have even greater capability. This is how you get things fast, not to have identical things. Uh, allow the program manager to hold a reserve fund. The program manager has no ability to hold a reserve fund because it's, quote, early to need. And your money that's sitting there as a reserve, something blows up, is taken away from you, right? So final thought for the incoming administration, bring in leader with industry experience, business experience into the DOD. They take the time to figure out what is inherently broken that's inside the Pentagon today. Uh, allow movement between industry and government because you know what? You need that. You need industry folks who understand how to run things efficiently to go into the Pentagon to help them out, okay? You've got to partner with industry and don't treat them like an adversary. Um, I talked about you've got to streamline the acquisition process because you could have a undersecretary of research and engineering who will do no one it will not do one iota of good if you can't change the bureaucratic process because the latest technology cannot be inserted in. Okay, uh, and. Uh, hold all the stakeholders accountable. You've got this very, very long acquisition bus with all the stakeholders sitting on it, with a PM being the bus driver, but every stakeholder has a steering wheel and a brake, okay? And you're only trying to hold the PM responsible. It's, it's a non-starter. Okay, that's it. Sorry. Can I give you a hug? <laughs> well, thanks, Heidi. And you did warn me you had some things to get off your chest, but very interesting things. I just want to highlight, Gabe, if you would uh, narrow down this chart down to 2009, so when the drawdown started, uh, just to highlight what Heidi was talking about, which is the, uh, the drawdown. Now, the overall defense drawdown was about 28%. Uh, but the drawdown in contract obligations is steeper. It's more like 35%. Uh, then if you, if you narrow it down to R&D contracts, uh, what you see is that it's steeper yet. It's actually a 50% uh, reduction. Uh, and then, uh, because I can't resist, just to Heidi's point, if you just look at Army, uh, as she mentioned, it's actually over 70% decline in R&D contracts. Uh, so the budget cuts of 28% uh, translated to a reduction of over 70% in Army R&D. Uh, and, and so I think that's underappreciated. So thank you, Heidi. Next up is Joe. 
Um, thanks very much. Um, so let me say a few things about a narrower subject, uh, which is defense trade, um, and the uh, several things which are um, either inhibitors to defense trade or enablers of defense trade. Um, and based in part on personal experience in the Pentagon, although I will say my experience in the Pentagon was about seven years ago, so the, 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 the level of passion of what I'm about to describe <laughs> is probably not quite the same as what you've just heard uh, deservedly from, from Heidi. Um, I won't make the case for why defense trade is good. I mean, I, I, we can have that discussion, but I think to this audience it probably uh, doesn't need to be made, and defense trade clearly is uh, one of the, the, the real bright spots in the overall trade picture for the United States. Um, secondly, uh, th there is a big political context in which defense trade takes place. And we heard, uh, I think, a lot about that this morning from both Secretary Panetta and from uh, Chairman Thornberry. Um, defense exports are shaped by a process that depends, among other things, on uh, the perception uh, th that uh, the United States is a reliable partner and then as a second-order second order, uh, uh point the, the perception that the United States is a reliable partner in the defense trade sphere, that we're a reliable partner for, def for defense goods and services and products, and that uh, we, we can deliver those product, products that are first the best in the world, secondly, we can deliver them in a timely manner, and third, that we won't shut the spigot off that years, some, some years down the road uh, that, that leaves the, the partner high and dry. Um, there, there seem to be, I think, sort of two schools of thought on how the, the new administration will, can impact defense trade, right? It's sort of a big picture level. And one would be that, well, so the, given what the president-elect said on the campaign trail, um, allies are all going to step up to the plate and spend more money. And, I mean, in fact, there is some evidence that this is true, although I think in Europe this has been true now for the past, for the past year or two anyway. Um, and that, therefore, there is, that there is a greater opportunity for U.S. industry to arm the allies. The, 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 op, the other point of view, and the truth is probably somewhere in the middle, as always, the, is that the, the allies' increased defense spending will go to benefit their own industries, in part because of a worry about the U.S. being a reliable partner, uh, given some things that were said uh, on the campaign trail. Um, and so that, that politi this political context um, overshadows what I'm about to say, and clearly the administration, what the administration says and probably more importantly, what the administration does affects this political context in which defense trade takes place. But what I want to talk about are uh, sort of is the, a few things in the sausage-making machinery that supports defense trade that, regardless of, of the political context, uh, have an effect on how we, we do in the defense trade business. And three things in particular that I'll touch on briefly. The first is the organization of the Department of Defense, and particularly OSD. Um, the second is export control reform, and the third is FMS, everybody's favorite whipping boy. Um, so first on the organization of the Department of Defense and authorities for the Department of Defense. So the current uh, National Defense Authorization Act, which will be voted on here shortly, uh, puts OSD organization on the defense trade plate uh, in a very prominent way, although it's not immediately obvious when you look at this organization. So um, and the, 
thing that I am principally talking about is the, dis, is the disestablishment of the Undersecretary for Acquisition Technology and Logistics and the creation of two new, two new undersecretaries, one for R&E and one for acquisition and, and sustainment. Um, and the, the motivation, obviously, as is, I think, spelled out, um, is to uh, do a better, to have the department do a better job in promoting innovation, uh, developing uh, new technology, to get, and and being able then to to proceed to acquisition in a, in a more efficient way. And obviously, the the jury will be out on whether the organization does that or not. The thing that I would point out is this organization also this. This reorganization will also affect the role of OSD in the defense trade space, by dis probably inadvertently, but it will. And so, for example, decisions have to be made about things that affect defense trade. So, um, in the new organization, what happens to the to the parts of, of ATNL that are responsible for international cooperation and armaments cooperation and cooperative programs? I mean, for example. Uh, ATNL uh, was the driving force behind the, the the actual implementation of the Defense Trade and Technology Initiative with India. So, what happens to initiatives like that in an organization where you've sort of fragmented the responsibilities of ATNL? I think this is something we need to pay attention to, and actually, I think industry should have a voice in this because the the the, sec the new Secretary of Defense will have a year to figure out what, how to fill in the blanks beneath, beneath these new assistant, these new undersecretaries, uh, and, and there's a fair amount of latitude to, on how to do that. And so the, the, the point being here that we need to think about how this organization affects the responsibilities of the acquisition world for defense trade, defense trade not only for the, for the, for the development of the U.S. defense industry to serve the needs of the Department of Defense. Um, and, and I would also note that um, it is uh, sort of an iron law of the Pentagon that every new administration, uh, without help necessarily from Congress, reorganizes the office of the Undersecretary for Policy, which will again happen with the new administration. This will also affect defense trade depending on how things get wired up. The Defense Security Cooperation Agency, the Defense Technology Security Administration, the folks responsible for the regional offices and so forth. But I would say again, there is a there is a in the National Defense Authorization Act, one of the areas of focus is reforming security cooperation processes and authorities in the department. This will lead to some reorganization. And so again, we have to pay attention to how this reorganization is done such that the pieces fit together in a way that supports defense trade as a part of security cooperation. As I said, I think industry's voice and those of us who sit on the outside and former government officials need to be heard on this. Um, the second piece that I would like to talk, just to mention briefly, is export control reform. So the new administration will do something on export control reform. And, and I say this because each of the past three administrations, going back to the Clinton administration, has done something on export control reform. Some more effective perhaps than others, but each of these administrations has realized that export control reform was not just a nice thing, it was it was an imperative for national security for at least three, three reasons. The first is to do a better job of protecting the critical technology rather than everything under the sun. The second was the, to make sure that the export control system actually supports and promotes um, allied interoperability and defense cooperation. And the third, uh, and, and, uh, and equally important, was that the export control system should promote the health of the, the defense investment 
industrial base um, in view of foreign competition and foreign availability so that our partners overseas don't go elsewhere because of the fact that our export control system makes it impossible to come here. Um, there were investments in both the Clinton and Bush administrations to increase the efficiency of the system, to hire more people, to, to shorten license processing times, and so forth. Uh, there was the initiative uh, that sort of began in the Clinton administration, was carried out in, Bush, in, in the Bush administration to put in place defense trade treaties with the U.K. and Australia to try to reduce the barriers to cooperation with close allies. And then in the Obama administration, seven years of very hard work to work through all the categories of the, of the munitions list uh, and the corresponding categories of the, the, of the uh, commerce control list to, to produce a more rational list, a positive list, and so forth. Uh, and, you know, the administration points to results that, for example, state, the Department of State now processes on a monthly basis half as many licenses for USML, for USML as, as was the case before the beginning of export control reform. If you compare 2009, 10, 11 to, to this year, it's, it's about half as many licenses as they're being processed at state. Interesting thing is that the license processing time has gone up a bit, which suggests that state is now dealing, this is good news, right, because state's now dealing with more difficult things as opposed to bolts and fasteners and other things which are easy to approve. Um, and the, the number of commodity jurisdiction requests trying to figure out whether something goes under the USML or under the commerce control list has also gone down thanks to the, thanks to the system. So that's all good. But, but I think from both an industry and, and the, the, we've now been through or the administration has been through thir- uh, all but three of the categories of the munitions list um, at, at least once. So this, and this is all good news, but the, the job's not done. And I think from both a government and an industry perspective, you, the new administration can't sort of say, well, you know, the previous administration took care of this, we're done. Um, at, at a minimum, the process has to be sustained because the way the system works now is, is it will depend on regular reviews of both the USML and the CCL to bring it to take into account new technology given how specific the USML has become. So at least that has to happen. But there are, many, there are a number of other things that the administration needs to decide, right? So, for example, do we, is there some prospect working with Congress of moving to a single list and a single administrator for this process? I think that's a very heavy lift, probably not, but it's, a, it's an issue to be, to be dealt with. You know, there are continued challenges in cross-border cooperation among the, that, that, that involve uh, different parts of multinational companies who, are, who may be partly in the U.S. and partly elsewhere, and the ability to share information without it all being subject to, to licenses all the time, right? And that was the motivation, one of the motivations for the defense trade treaties for, uh, for the U.K. And, and, uh, and Australia as well. Um, and then I think a big, a big um, factor that needs to be dealt with um, and I think uh, Dave Melcher mentioned this, is the fact of foreign availability and the fact that there are technologies where uh, the U.S. is clearly not the only possessor of the technology. The horse, the, you know, in effect, the horse has left the barn, and yet the export control system still tries to deal with it as if that's not the case. And UA, UAVs are a great example. I would just note that, these, that some of the most difficult cases are not 
the problem is not the export control system. The problem is that the export control system responds to policy directive and policy agreements like the interpretation of how to uh, interpret the missile technology control regime uh, that then gets folded into export control. Um, I, I would just note here that clearly industry has, a, has had a voice in export control reform and needs to have a voice. It, it, it helps greatly when industry can speak with, um, with one voice. I think that's a challenge sometimes, but I would note that in the Bush administration, um, in my experience, when, when we undertook uh, some export control reforms late in the Bush administration, a driving factor was the fact that industry, through something called the Coalition for Security and Competitiveness, which was AIA, which was National Association of Manufacturers, sort of spoke with one voice to the administration and said, here's a set of things you can do that would make the process better, uh, very realistic, and, and it's what prompted the administration actually to take the action. Um, the, the last, the only, my other point would be it, export control reforms always take longer than you think, right? And I think both in the Clinton and Bush administrations, we started late on these reforms uh, and uh, discovered that they take longer than you think. And so the advice, if there, if there is advice to the new administration, it's start now. Um, then the last thing I'd, I'd mention on is, as I said, the, the system that everybody loves to hate, the foreign military sales system. Um, and so I think it's important to recognize that this is not just a bureaucratic problem in the Defense Security Cooperation Agency. So DSCA, uh, every DSCA administrator that I know of has tried to fix the bureaucracy at DSCA. I mean, they, you know, apply Lean Six Sigma, you know, for example, to the process. Okay. So, so the, the, the issue is that there are a number of things that, that I think in the common perception get lumped into FMS, which are really not directly part of the FMS problem, but affect it greatly. So I'll give you three pieces. It's sort of at the beginning, in the middle, and the end. So at the beginning, um, the, the, there, is an, the, there is a parallel set of things that need to take place to, ex, to, to export deals on technology release, right? And so, um, for example, the approval of sensitive technologies through the low-observable, counter-low-observable committee that's chaired by ATNL. Um, both beginning in the Bush administration and continuing into this administration, there was an effort in, uh, in, in OSD to be more anticipatory about technology release. In other words, rather, to, rather than waiting to see that the foreign government has issued a request for proposals, actually to, to the extent possible to know that something is coming to start working these technology release issues and what's going to be approved in the package earlier. And so that, there's been progress in this, but it's, this is another thing that's not done and needs, to be, uh, and needs to be addressed. And again, given the fact that of the, of the AT&L reorganization, needs to be thought of in, the, in how the pieces are stitched together in the new, in the new, under the new two undersecretaries. So that's one piece. That's on the front end. On the back end, I would just, uh, you know, thump the table on what Heidi just said about the contract process. One of the biggest problems in FMS has been the increasing time it takes to get things under, under contract. Um, and so when people complain about the FMS system, you have to realize when you get to the point of having assigned 
letter of offer and acceptance, and now it's going to go to contract. It goes into the Department of Defense contracting system. It's not FMS. I mean, yes, it's FMS, but it's not FMS at that point. It's just contracting. And so one of the, one of the significant problems in getting things delivered is the contracting is the contracting system. And so much needs to be, if nothing else, to hire enough contracting officers to get the work done, which flies in the face of, the, which flies in the face of this, this drumbeat of there are too many people in government, right? Uh, but but it's a constant problem, and we see it. I mean, we see it in a, in a number of areas. But it's clearly the case that it, that it affects FMS as well. And then the third thing I would mention is sort of somewhere in the middle, which is congressional notification. So I noted that Cong- that Chairman Thornberry said he wants to fix FMS. Well, this is what needs to be fixed: <laughs> is is the time it takes to get things through congr- through the congressional notification process, uh, which which adds in some cases years not just days, weeks, months, years, to, to an FMS case. So, you know, there is an opportunity, if Congress is willing to, it, it is serious about reforming FMS, looking in their own house is a good place to start. Um, the only other thing that I would mention, and then I'm, and then I'm done, is uh, it, it will matter on, on, on defense trade, is it will matter how this administration appro- approaches advocacy, I think, again, there was progress in the Obama administration on stitching together the parts of the interagency which need to be involved in advocacy for, for, US defense, for U.S. defense sales. And I'm not just talking about formal advocacy where the defense, where the company goes to, and gets formal advocacy for commerce. I mean, even before that, where we start thinking about how U.S. government officials ought to support uh, defense, the, the defense sales uh, to, to allies and, and, the, the, and, and how that's worked at an interagency level. So I think one of the things to, to look for is how this administration, whether this administration will step up to the plate on advocacy for U.S. defense sales or, or not. I'm done. Thanks, Joe. You, you uh, took me back down memory lane on a couple of those uh, issues, but uh, in the interest of time, I won't walk the rest of you down that uh, memory lane. Um, I'm going to have a few questions here before we turn to our audience. Uh, and uh, I want to start on, on BCA, on, on the budget issue. Uh, we, obviously, that came up in several remarks here and also in the uh, opening session. But uh, I want to get down maybe uh, one more level down. Uh, obviously, encouragingly, Chairman Thornberry talked about uh, the defense sequester, there being some consensus, and I agree with him about this, to, to raise the top line. Uh, but then the question becomes, if you raise the top line, where does that money go? How is it divvied up between the services? How is it divvied up among the priorities of personnel uh, uh, for shaping readiness and modernization? Uh, and and there's, uh, there's obviously going to be some competition for those resources. In fact, uh, I'd point out that the, the chairman's bill, the NDAA conference report that came out yesterday, uh, the way they solved their budget dilemma where they were trying to add about $18 billion is they funded all the readiness and personnel priorities and all the modernization things fell out. Now, I'm aware that that may, they may not be the final outcome for the FY17 bill when, when we get to an appropriations bill, but nonetheless it says something right about this competition for resources. Uh, and if there's a chance and if you're feeling really spicy, uh, maybe you can link your answer to that question about uh, about how you see this competition for resources playing out, even as the budget starts to increase, hopefully, uh, what that might mean for industry structure, because I was really intrigued by Bill's comments about the, the changing nature of the structure of industry uh, and how that competition for resources may play out uh, with winners and losers uh, in, in the market. 
wants to start? <laughs> well, you know, I think, um, you know, in terms of priorities, there's already a lot of well-known priorities. I think you all put out a study uh, indicating that the bow wave for all the key acquisition programs coming up in the next several years was something on the order of $700 billion, right? Uh, so that's a, that's a big nut to, uh, to have to address in one way or another uh, with an increased level of, of defense spending. Um, I, I think, you know, one would be, should be wary of talking about increasing a whole bunch of structure before getting to modernizing what you have. Um, and some of the preliminary comments were about, you know, increasing numbers of things uh, significantly. I think that just leads to, you know, another round of hollowness unless it's followed up with, the, you know, the money to actively modernize and sustain uh, the equipment that you're putting out there. So, you know, I, I just uh, – I think there are going to be plenty of claimants for the dollars that are, that are being contemplated. There's going to be, you know, way more demand than there is uh, ability to pay, but – uh, I think it's possible to, you know, to apply some more resources, if nothing else, just to execute the strategy that Bob Gates and some of his successors have said was important, you know, to be able to execute our responsibilities uh, as the United States. Just a couple of comments. One, there's a competition before the competition you, you said. I don't want to pour cold water on everybody's assuming the BCA is gone, but... In isolation, I think everybody agrees we should eliminate the sequester, should eliminate the caps, we should increase defense spending. Uh, and I think now that the three pieces of government, the Senate, the House, and the White House are all in one party, structurally that will be easier to accomplish than it is has been negotiating the kind of the uh, the deals, the two-year deals that we've had, that they kind of limp along because the, the, the priorities differ so radically on how to eliminate BCA. That said, the competition isn't over. The Eliminating the BCA costs money in terms of the deficit. Mm -hmm. Tax reform, if you read President-elect Trump's plan, costs a lot of money depending on how they execute this. Infrastructure costs a lot of money. Uh, how the, all of this is going to add up, I think, is yet to be determined. I, I, I do think, though, you know, the, 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 the president-elect has made commitments to increase defense budgets. I think he will probably make good on those. But I don't think it's going to be quite as easy and maybe not quite as large as, as people are anticipating uh, at this point. So I, I just kind of make the, there's a competition before the competition. The other is, and I'd be interested in Heidi's remarks on this, I think the real competition in the Department for Resources, the biggest one will be inside the Army. Uh, because the Army is, there, there seems to be a strong commitment both in the Army and by on the campaign trail to increasing the size of the Army. That is a very, very expensive uh, uh, option to pursue. Uh, and it will drive out I think it's very possible that you will add more demands for resources with an increase in the structure than you will actually add dollars to the Army budget. So I, I, I think there's a, a, a case that it, 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 you, you know, break-even might even be good. It, 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 so I, I worry about that. The Navy and the Air Force, I think the drives are more towards uh, uh, modernization than they are towards structure. Marine Corps would be a little bit of an exception there. But... Uh, so I, I think the, the, the place to focus is the Army. Our, 
how how big an increase are you going to propose in the in the end strength of the army and are you going to fully fund it so i completely concur with your comment okay and as uh, i have seen as the manpower started to come down uh within uh the army's budget um there's there's a huge conflict you got to remember the chief's responsibility is being ready to fight in any contingency tomorrow, right? So what is he going to focus on? He's going to focus on manpower. He's going to focus on training because that's readiness. That equals readiness, okay? But as we have already seen what's been happening in Ukraine, we need modernization to counter the current threats, not future threats current threats. That's why I keep harping upon we've got to focus on the modernization because we get out of Afghanistan. We've been fighting that, what, you know, the coin fight for 15 years, right? So we're really good at uh, coin fights. But as we go out of that sphere of influence against any other area, even in Syria today, we've got shortfalls in our equipment. We absolutely got to focus on uh, uh, funding these modernization of critical capability gaps, which I sort of alluded to earlier in the discussion. So I'm really worried the focus is strictly, okay, Congress, I'll give you more money so you can get, you know, 200,000 more soldiers. Well, that's great that, you know, we'll have more 200,000 more soldiers, but they're not going to, you're putting them into harm's way if you're not modernizing your equipment against current threats, right? That's what I'm worried about. I just think one of the interesting things uh, to watch over the next year is uh, we heard Mac Thornberry talk uh, about its its spending, taxes, uh, and, uh, you know, entitlements. And if you don't address all three of those, right, you can't get to the whole picture. Well, what we've heard so far is want to increase spending, want to reduce taxes, don't want to touch entitlements. Um, so, you know, we all know that that can't solve the problem, but I think you also have to see what happens with uh, a potential mentality uh, that was built upon debt and leverage. Um, you know, I mean, it's, it's no secret, right, that uh, the whole business that is behind Mr. Trump was built on debt and leverage. And so uh, we all think you can't do that with the United States government. I think it'll be interesting to see. So, so just briefly, I would add, just to, um, I think, to follow on Bill's comment, I think there are two other sort of general sources of tension, even if the budget, as the, if the budget go, if the funding for the Department of Defense goes up, beyond the tension in the Army between force structure and modernization. So for the Air Force and the Navy, there's tension. It's the, it's the tension between the big bill for nuclear modernization and continued spending on, con, on, on conventional modernization. That can be fixed by making the budget go up. But, but there is a tension there now as the big bills start coming due in, the 20, in 2020 and, and after that. The second tension, which will be interesting to see play out given, among other things, the choice of the National Security Advisor, and we'll see who is Secretary of Defense, is the tension between, at, at the OSD level, the priority between the, the counterterrorism fight and, the, and, the, and the, 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 the preparation for 
peer-to-peer competition and the and the state actors. Um, <coughs> you know, but the, the obviously the, the the more priority on the counterterrorism fight g- generally translates to you know more money for special forces, SOCOM, and things that are not necessarily directly useful in sort of the 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 uh, the state the state actors. So that's a second set of tension that I would watch. And then on your point about consolidation. Um, you know, we, we've seen, we've seen. I think, Bill, as you mentioned, wait, some waves of consolidation that have taken place. I mean, you mentioned the, you know, the Bill Perry and the, the, the during the during the Clinton administration, we we saw consolidation at sort of the second and third tier in 2008. Follow, you know, following or, or following the decline in the defense budget. Um, and we'll see that. I think an interest, and, and so it's not clear to me that how much further consolidation you get if the defense budget goes up. I mean, the one thing that happens is um, it it makes the U.S. Def- the, the it makes the U.S. defense industry or buying into the U.S. defense industry interesting to foreign companies. I mean, Leonardo is the great example, you know. But and so it's the the, the policy of the, the of the department has generally been has been generally. With some restrictions, obviously, to welcome foreign investment in the defense sphere, and so one of the things to watch, I think, will be, you know, in this new environment, how we continue to welcome foreign investment in the defense sphere uh, in in this new administration. The, the, the caution would be, uh, we are likely to see some changes in the in in the. Uh, the regulation of foreign investment in the U.S. through the Committee on Foreign Investment in the U.S. driven by China. And so the issue will be, and the con- concerns about Chinese investment, so the issue will be to make sure that if people muck around with CFIUS, that you don't somehow undo the ability to have useful foreign investment in the defense industry, that we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. That's it. Uh, Joe, I know you don't know this, but we happen to have a report on CFIUS coming out next week. So uh, thank you for that free advertisement. Uh, stay tuned. And, and, uh, it's, and it's everybody all should be pay explained. attention to what's in the, what's in the CSIS report because it's good. <laughs> okay. I want to turn to audience questions. There's a, a rich topic uh, still to be explored, but uh, I, the first hand I saw earlier was back here. Why don't we uh, come in the back? So I want to thank Heidi for that analysis. It was uh, uh, in-depth analysis. My name is Roy Capani, and um, I'm the chairman of a company called ECS, a federal government contracting firm. One of the things on that chart that I think um, would be interesting to show also is as the dollars drew down, um, the procurement actions actually went up. Uh, we noticed that in many of the uh, agencies, we saw more actions happening. I'm wondering if that was uh, in kind of a debundling of contracts or more contract actions we've seen a lot of with this with the small business the impact of the small business uh, uh, goals to be something that has helped drive procurement and taken up a lot of the procurement resources and whether or not there'd be any appetite to have um, the subcontracted dollars count towards the, the the agency's small business goals as opposed to only counting those prime dollars that are awarded thanks and I would just mention we're going to put up here, you can see the uptick in small business uh, share uh, of all contracts, contract obligations. Yeah. I will say when I, uh, about five years ago, well, six now, when I first entered the uh, Pentagon, the Army contracting actions per year was about 465,000 contracting actions per year. Okay. And that actually has dropped to about half. Into last year, 
So the contracting actions has come down significantly. Ergo, the resistance of adding more contracting staff. Okay? And by the way, FMS folks are never playing into the contracting in the beginning. It's an additional burden. So as demands for drawing down civilian workforce, what happens is they don't they just peanut butter the cuts, right? It's just painful. No matter how many times I have said the contracting folks are the most valuable folks we have because if you don't have the contracting folks, nothing gets done, right? So you better, you better keep your contracting folks and get rid of everybody else if you have to, right? <laughs> but they don't, they don't do that. It's always peanut butter. So, so the other statistics is if you take a look at the Army contracting, 50% it's Army contracting folks have less than five years of experience. Your senior folks have retired. We've got a bow way. A junior person with less than five years experience is not going to be able to handle a contract action rapidly, right? They're learning, okay? So we've got tons of problems. We've got shortfalls in contracting folks, and this is why the whole system is, I hate to say it, the word, it's constipated. Okay. <laughs> so I have a suggestion. Um, get rid of some of the auditing billets and make them contractors. Um, and, and that's said only half in jest. Uh, you know, when, when you talk to a lot of the CEOs of, of our member companies, in some cases auditing has gone up, you know, by numerical count, 5X, 10X uh, from what it was before. And what is not being done is the risk-based auditing that's done in almost every corporation in America, where you have your internal audit team, you have your external auditors, and there's a, there's a, there's a bit of a dynamic going between the two where the one is not going to do the same thing that the other one's doing. Um, I, I think we really got to take a look at that regime, you know, in any kind of a new administration as well, and there's where you can get your slots. <laughs> I'm all for it. Okay, we had a question down here in the second row. Will Embry from Will Embry from DynCorp International. If I could just uh, piggyback onto a David's comment, uh, I think everybody here understands that even the best of companies uh, uh, support auditing and oversight. You know, we uh, and as a taxpayer, we want to make sure that people don't do bad things and and don't do you know do things by mistake. But you know, given you know your concern about this and ours, uh, what's the message to the new administration, both in Congress and on the uh, uh, and in the administration on how to reduce the the duplic the duplicate the duplicity no that's the wrong word the duplication uh, of the uh, oversight functions. Yeah, is there something, Dave, that's driving or anyone that's driving this increase in audit activity? So, you, inherently, you have a very risk averse system. Any one program, any one contractor, something happens, it blows up, and guess what happens? More rules, more regulation, more laws. And everybody now has to suffer the consequences of one bad apple, right? So you have a very conservative, risk-averse system, right? You've got contracting folks don't want to screw up on the contracting because guess what happens? They get the head chopped off, right? There is no incentive to say, oh, they did a great job. You awarded this a month earlier than I expected. Right? But 
but I'm going to shoot you if you do something wrong. So what do you think the action is going to be? Incredible oversight. Layers and layers and layers of oversight. For example, a contract. A local area will, will have a lawyer look at it. And the next layer up, and the Army Contracting Command will look at it. Then Army Material Command lawyer will look at it. Comes to my office, I have my lawyers look at it. Well, how many sets of lawyers do we need to look at this, right? But everybody is scared of making a mistake, okay? That's a system you have. Just reinforce what, what Heidi said. It, 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 unlike a lot of things in the private sector, it is unbalanced in, in government. I mean, I mean, use a silly example. I mean, you know, Neiman Marcus has a shoplifting problem. They could reduce shoplifting to zero, but that would cut, cut their sales if they have armed guards at the door and they're searching everybody. It, it would work. Uh, we do that. We search everybody. We have armed guards. I mean, that, that's uh, – and it, 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 there's no balancing in, you know, kind of how, how does the, 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 the potential for fraud or abuse or, or misallocation actually affect the bottom line of the department? We don't look at it that way. Obviously, you, you want to protect the taxpayers' money, but the, you've got to have a materiality test. You've got to have a, a, a sense of proportionality. But the, 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 the public spotlight, the congressional spotlight uh, makes it very, very hard. When I was CFO comptroller of the Pentagon, we had a, an Air Force Master Sergeant write a, a check for a few hundred thousand dollars to a shell company of his girlfriend. And so I end up on NBC Nightly News uh, because some senator, I won't name him, decided to give a big floor statement about this. And it, it said, yeah, I'm saying, okay, we, he did this. We caught him. He's in jail for 10 years, and we got the money back. I, I'm not quite sure what the issue is. Uh, but nevertheless, it was NBC Nightly News, and they ran it. Uh, and that's, the, that's the, at, at the core of the problem. And I don't know how you take that away. I mean, you're not getting, you know, 60 minutes isn't going away. The Senate floor isn't going away. So it's, uh, that's, that's, uh, I think, at the core of it. Right, we have time for one more, and right here uh, next to uh, Lauren, right next to you. Thank you. Uh, John Harper with National Defense Magazine. Um, I, I was wondering what impact do you think organizations like DIUX will have on the broader DOD acquisition process as well as the uh, defense marketplace writ large? Thanks. Add on. Um, you know, I know DIUX in, in a couple manifestations has been an attempt to try and really be like a scout, you know, and, and see what kind of technologies are out there in the marketplace. Um, I, I actually think that there's a lot more innovation coming from the companies themselves and uh, the Strategic Capabilities Organization, which was stood up, which was a different animal, looking at what are the capabilities that we have within the department today that can be enhanced, repurposed, used in another way, uh, maybe with uh, not an extensive amount of investment in order to get some great new capability out of it. I think that's been a real launch forward. It's about a billion-dollar budget now. It'll be interesting to see whether that transitions over to a new administration. DIUX, I think, is going to have to be, uh, you know, a new SECDEF is going to have to be convinced that they're getting bang for the buck out of that investment. I don't know yet, but I, I don't think I've seen it, you know, at least from an industry perspective. Maybe from a little different perspective. I, 
I think the importance of DIUX is not the office itself. It's not the presence in Silicon Valley. I think it's the recognition by the, the department's leadership that it has to have a broader canvassing for technology, that it has to look in more places uh, for technology. Uh, this is the point I was made about commercial technology. Whether DIUX itself is working or whether it's going to continue, I think is less important than does the new administration, the new leadership at DOD have that recognition. And if they have a different way of attacking it, a better way, great. But I think you do have to attack that problem. I, I will make the comment that uh, I know what Ash Carter is trying to do is bring innovation faster into the Pentagon, right? So everybody's wholehearted concurs with that concept. I still talk about the inherent acquisition process. That's there. That is, that, you know, I hate to use the word constipated, but it, it is, right? It's lethargic. Uh, and things don't move fast. I talked about the requirements taking two years. You know, all the stuff that takes so long to get done. Until you fix the process that's inherently, that's inside, you can't get a new idea into a system, right? So you could have Einstein being there, and guess what? You still can't get it into your weapon systems. That absolutely has to get fixed. You've got to get somebody who's going to be bureaucracy buster in there, who understand the bureaucracy that's inherently in there, and streamline that. 